Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast, and I'm your host, Carl Sharman. Today, I'm joined by Nick Whittaker. Nick is currently Head of Platform Engineering and DevOps at Virgin Atlantic Airways. Nick started out as a chemistry teacher in the mid-90s. Experimenting with designing molecule moduling web pages for his students led him to switch into a career in technology in 2000. He has worked across the development life cycle as a coder, a project and portfolio manager, a technical trainer, a solution and enterprise architect, and in various delivery and operation leadership roles. He has worked in many industries, including manufacturing, insurance, film, visual effects, and broadcasting. Hope you enjoy it. Beecher Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Okay, welcome to the podcast, Nick. It's great to have you on. Thank you, Carl. Good to be here. Excellent. So let's start from the beginning. Where was you born? Uh, I'm a Brummie. Okay. So I was, I was born in Birmingham. Um, the accent normally comes out when people ask me. <laughs> and just tell me a bit about like, what your parents did as jobs when you were, when you were a kid. Yeah. Um, so my parents were both teachers. Yes. Uh, my mum uh, is French. She was a French assistant and then a French teacher in uh, various schools in Birmingham. Um, my dad uh, was a maths teacher um, uh, and uh, latterly a headmaster wow. in Birmingham before he retired. Um, he set up the first school uh, in the country, I believe, that ran wheelchair judo. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. That's, do, you, do, you think you, do you think you learn a lot of sort of teaching and leadership skills off your parents? <laughs> My first job was a teacher. Oh, really? When I left university, I became a teacher before I came into this, <laughs> into this game, yeah. So, uh, 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 absolutely. Um, in, in terms of... I guess my value system and my belief system that's, that's heavily informed by them mm. um, but also uh, a view of um, working with people to enable other people to do what they want to do that's, yes. that's core to what they did as, as professionals that's core to their belief system and that's core to mine uh, it was core to me as a teacher and it's core to me now in everything I do perfect so what was your education like? <laughs> um, I, 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 I wasn't the sharpest nail in the box, but but I wasn't I wasn't the dullest hammer either. Somewhere <laughs> in the middle, um, I was probably nondescript. Uh, I I kind of kept below the radar. Um, I, I guess I didn't really get it. I didn't. I certainly didn't mature, and I, I certainly I, I either uh, um, uh, as a person or, or from an educational perspective until I'd left school and gone to to sixth form and to university, and that's where things started to fall into place. Uh, I did chemistry as a degree okay. at university. Um, I wasn't great at it, I wasn't awful, I was okay, but it wasn't until I left university uh, and decided I was going to go into teaching that actually I had to stop, look at how I approached learning mm. um, uh, and 
realised I had to take a new approach um, because I was going to teach the stuff um, and became much better uh, at uh, self-improvement, uh, at, at entering a learning journey um, and at getting around my subject as a consequence of, of that. Mm. Because needs must and I had to because I was yeah. about to teach kids who quite often were smarter than I was in, in, <laughs> in a sixth form. Yeah, so. that's, that's an interesting challenge for sure. Yeah. But why, why chemistry? That's quite an easy question to answer. When I was about 14, um, me and my mates used to like blowing things up. Oh, um, makes total sense. So I remember <laughs> on one, one occasion, um, we tear gassed my friend's front kitchen. Uh, on, another, on another occasion, um, with some shock sensitive uh, nitrogen triodide crystals, we set my mate's bedroom on fire. Wow, yeah. So, um, <laughs> as, as everybody does. does. As everybody does. <laughs> well, I suspect it's a bit more difficult now to get hold of the chemicals you need to do that, but that was really the starting point. Yeah. <laughs> so, you spoke, about, you spoke about teaching, Yeah. but how do you actually get to today? Because there's, there's obviously a difference between doing chemistry to being a teacher to where you're sitting today. So, yeah. how did you get there? Um, so, whilst I was teaching, um, I was labouring under the uh, illusion that I wasn't in the real world and all my friends who were earning more than me doing, in quotes, business jobs were in the real world. <laughs> I thought yeah. I was. Um, <laughs> so, I, I taught for a few years, but I, I wasn't satisfied. Um, I, I love being in the classroom. I love doing that stuff. Um, this was, you know, this was in the, the mid-90s. Mm. Um, Teaching was, you know, teaching's in a state today, it was in a state then, the bit between then and now is okay for a period of time. Yes. Um, but um, there were huge amounts of admin, 50% of the job was admin, the pay wasn't great, um, and it was a, a changing landscape every five minutes. Hilarious to think now I'm in technology where it's a changing landscape every five minutes. <laughs> but anyway, um, during that time, um, I was making, you know, I was quite young, I was making decisions about what I need to, needed to do. Um, and uh, in a couple of my teaching roles, um, I spent time working with technology, so with my A-level chemistry students, um, I wrote some really basic HTML intranet pages that allowed uh, the students to do homework around uh, molecular interactions, so be 2D and 3D diagrams of you know, chemical reactions rendered in HTML. Um, I'd also begin to learn some access database stuff, which we were using um, with the students for ex tracking experiments and all that kind of stuff, um, and um, you know, uh, logging equipment and interfacing and all that kind of thing. So w w when I left teaching and asked myself, oh, what am I going to do now? Um, <laughs> I've got, uh, I've effectively got a, a summer holiday paycheck, and then I need to make a decision. It was okay. I know I can do some IT. Uh, I'll do a, a long distance learning C programming course. Yes. Started that. Uh, it was a City and Guilds course, I think. Um, and before I completed it, I'd got my first job, which was a trainee junior developer for a manufacturing industry asset management company. Right. Uh, pretty quickly, I was doing some database stuff. I was programming, if you remember them, Palm OS mm. devices yeah. um, for uh, the shop floor of places like Range Rover, Warburton's, British Rail, when it was British Rail, um, to allow sort of stormer to walk around, scan assets, and interface like the back to database systems. So that's how I started. Um, after a year there, I moved into a company in London. I moved down from Birmingham to London for a job with a software house that made uh, insurance and kind of finance systems. Yes. Um, I was there for four or five years. Um, 
began to get my chops as a you know an average developer, began learning proper DBA stuff and also uh, kind of infrastructure networky stuff. So our systems were, were based on Solaris. Yeah. Um, so beginning to go out and do client facing stuff, installing systems, troubleshooting, uh, getting into that world, that kind of opsy world as well. Um, and you know, and that was all kind of learning, but I hadn't found my feet. Um, and then I got the job really that mattered and started me on a technology curve, and that was for uh, a, a post-production and film distribution company called Deluxe. So um, if you're watching for Saturday movies, at the end titles of a film, you'll see one of two things. You'll either see Colour by Technicolor or Colour by Deluxe. Yeah. I work for that company. Um, for uh, uh, a year in their distribution lab uh, over in Denham, where Literally, there'd be uh, hundreds and hundreds of meters of film running through projectors, and we'd be responsible for maintaining the, the technology systems that, that hooked up all those things together. And then I moved from uh, that location to Deluxe's uh, visual effects house in Soho and, and, and began to get involved with really cutting edge, even bleeding edge technologies, um, workflow orchestration, glue, sticking systems together, had some successes. Uh, got appointed to the position of software engineering manager, built a team, um, and began to unblock problems across the lines of business in the organisation. At that point, I began to get visibility of how an organisation runs end-to-end -end mm. and how technology can join up all the various silos in an organisation. Um, from there, uh, I moved to uh, a solutions company, um, still in the same vertical, so broadcast post-production film, um, and, and, and that... Um, company offered a solution which would be customised in to broadcasters, film houses and so on. Again workflow, uh, glue uh, and solving problems around large files, transporting large files over the internet and over WANs. Hmm. So if you think about it, um, if, if you're making a film, um, each reel of a film might be um, you know, uh, several terabytes, a dozen terabytes, many many more actually if you're thinking now about 3D films. Um, and, and 4K films uh, um, and 8K films even. Um, so the, the problem there was, was how we have you know, innovative solutions based around the constraints of latent networks and all that kind of stuff. Um, in a fast-moving industry, under a lot of pressure, um, you know, I, I remember working for Berlusconi's Rayuna in Italy yes. um, and being locked in, in, a, in a, a broadcast playout room at four o'clock on a Saturday morning that brought, knowing that the, 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 the footage we need to get in had to be played out in two hours and we still haven't solved the problem of moving things around. So pressure. Pressure. So pressure circumstance um, and how to fit how to how to cobble together solutions um, innovatively hmm. uh, you know in aggressive timelines and <laughs> angry Italian shouting at you. <laughs> um, so that was that was a huge learning curve. Um, and you know, really gave me a great exposure as, as to how different organisations, different companies face the same problem, reinvent the wheel, and actually just have slightly different viewpoints on solving the same problem. I mean, I worked for pretty much every broadcaster um, and, and film house in Europe during that, those five years. So, so that, that was, you know, I guess, a further growth in, in that perspective of, you know, how do we find common ways to do things, how can we not reinvent the wheel, um, you know, you think you're in pain but somebody else has always suffered the same problem mm. and, and addressed it, you know, before you've, you've done so. That's true. Um, 
and then that took me to Virgin um, four years ago. Uh, I started here as a solution architect. Um, spent uh, my first two years mainly focused on our digital uh, platforms, supporting those. Um, one was a, a, a legacy platform, and then um, during that period of time, um, we moved to uh, a new platform. We had our biggest ever technology change, and during that time, uh, we moved to a, a system uh, supplied by uh, our partner airline, Delta. Yes. Um, and we're on a common platform there, and that, that platform touches pretty much every line of the business. It's a, a ticketing uh, platform. Um, so it affects airports, it affects contact centres, it affects the website, it affects our mobility solutions, right. uh, and a bunch of other stuff. And plums into a load of back-end uh, uh, internal systems as well. Um, so, once again, um, there I am, learning about all the other bits of the business, having never been in an airline before, um, with the advantage of now having come from teaching, through manufacturing, <laughs> through finance, through film, broadcast, um, you know, I've got my head round how to get on a learning curve, how to figure out how a, a new line of business to, does something. Yeah. Um, and by now I was used to the idea of those barriers between silos and how you, you begin approaching them. Hmm. Um, that project was a huge project. It was delivering iter iteratively, but really it was uh, waterfall yes. disguised as iterative. And the driver for it was a big bang, go live day. So we had literally hundreds of people in technology and across the organisation, both here and at Delta Airlines, all primed for a, a must-go, big bang, cutover. Um, and one of the vagaries of some of the more legacy systems that most airlines have um, is at the back end, uh, it, it's all or nothing with the system switch over. Um, we couldn't parallel run um, because there's a, a limit to uh, the number of identifiers available in, in, in any global ticketing system. Mm. So you can't have doubling up of those numbers. So that was a, a, a key driver. Um, and, it, in, and it was a successful delivery. Uh, I think to everybody's surprise, it was a really successful delivery. Um, but of course, the nature of that kind of delivery is a lot of people didn't get everything they thought they were going to get. Mm. Um, business change was something that was considered um, maybe a little bit further down the pipe. And there were a lot of bumps that had to be ironed out and a huge number of defects we had to live with at go live. Um, and as a consequence of that, you have the business A with a lot of pent, pent up um, demand, yeah. but also the business having gone off and done point solutions in the interim uh, for some of their other problems. Um, and so you then have to, again, begin to look at um, the efficacy of, of our delivery approaches. Um, so following that solution architect role, I moved into a role as um, senior manager for business systems. That took me beyond architecture into, you know, beyond pure technical architecture into business architecture and also into running um, a bunch of our in-house level two operational support teams. So a wider view of the world. And then into my current role, which is head of platform engineering and DevOps, where I have um, not just those uh, level two operational support teams. Um, and um, I work with a lot of our um, third-party supply partners. We're heavy, heavily supply-chained environment, which is a challenge from a DevOps perspective, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but also, I took ownership of um, our QA function, our in-house QA function. Um, we do have some in-house dev, um, particularly around innovation, um, integration, and so on. So I, I have that team. Um, uh, and um, 
our release management functions and, and a few others. So uh, teams across all aspects of the delivery pipe. Yes. Um, and and um, the strategic and transformational element of, of this relatively new role is around, okay, can we do something with DevOps? Can we incrementally move the business to something that looks like DevOps? Um, um, and that's really where I find myself now. Perfect. So it brings me to an interesting question because I know a lot of people that have worked in, in airlines and a lot of people say similar frustrations which must have gone through your head when this Virgin offer came up. So why Virgin for you? Um, when I, well, I took the initial role as a solution architect at Virgin because uh, in the previous role um, where I was um, out in the field for that supplier, going to all these broadcasters, um, I used to work with people every day, but, but none of my actual colleagues. My colleagues were all based out of offices in Boston. So although I'd be sitting with people every day, they would be customers. And you know you have those moments where you go, I just want to turn to the person on my left and say, I don't know what I'm doing. How do, I, how do we figure this out? Yeah. It's very difficult to do a job for five years where, where you're consistently putting, your, you know, putting on the customer face, um, trying to uh, imbue confidence um, um, in your competency to the customer and produce those results um, and do that um, without having time to kind of sit back and think and, and, and chew the company colleagues. Um, and also in that kind of industry where you're working with bleeding edge and cutting edge stuff, it's very difficult to, to kind of stop um, and look at the right way to do things. Mm. And the opportunity at Virgin was with a, an organisation that you know, would allow me to work in a, in a capability with colleagues um, and, and learn different approaches and learn maybe formal approaches um, and bring that into my skill set. Yeah. Um, and also to be exposed to um, different technologies um, and, and yeah, different and interesting uh, lines of business. So, so that, that was why I came to Virgin. Would you say it's, Virgin's become more attractive to you over the well, years? I think the, the key thing about Virgin actually is, is although you know, we are an airline, Virgin, the Virgin brand is much more than an airline, um, and and without going into kind of marketing speak and, and brand speak, um, there is something very specific about the Virgin brand that is a consequence of the people who work for Virgin companies and, and certainly for Virgin Atlantic. Um, and I don't know whether you noticed as we walked into the area in now, um, there was a big sign on the wall that said red on the inside, mm. um, and that's you know um, one of the behaviours we expect of of people here um, and. One of the things I love about being in this organisation is it is universally staffed with people who want to support their colleagues, who want to do the right thing for the customer, um, and also who want to bring a level of experience to the customer that is unsurpassed, but also ensure that their colleagues have that same level of experience internally. And that, that really builds... A, a fantastic working environment, despite whatever the challenges are within the working environment. And there yeah. are always challenges around constraints on resource or funding or, or you know external factors. But one thing that is always constant here is is the quality of of, of the people that, that one gets to work with. Um, and when one when one has a job where you are looking at transformational change, that's something that's really important. I agree with that. So let's ask the million pound question. 
going more into your job now, yep. what does DevOps mean to you? <laughs> well, um, DevOps means to me trust. Mm. So fundamentally, when I think about the ideal end state, but actually I think about the plan B that I've fallen back on and the plan C I've had to fall on after that um, and the interim states that will eventually get us towards something that might look a bit like the ideal state, what is consistent across all of those things is trust. Um, the ability for teams to be trusted to make changes to their particular product, the ability for the operational people who will be accountable for picking up a phone at two o'clock in the morning to trust those delivery teams, mm. um, to trust that what's being delivered is not going to get them up in the morning, um, ability for the business to trust their technology partners are doing the right thing, uh, the ability for technology partners to trust business have actually got the right focus on the right value outcomes of the thing you're building um, so that the customer gets, what do you mean, you know, in this case the internal customer, not only gets, you know, gets what they need but feels that they get what they want as well. Mm. Um, I could go on. <laughs> I'm sure. Or I could probably rephrase it. <laughs> Why are companies move into DevOps because I'm still not fully convinced the business not all businesses but a lot of the a lot within organizations the business is probably the one thing that's holding DevOps back so why why are companies move into DevOps what's the benefits um, I think the reality is and certainly um, this isn't this isn't universally true of the way Virgin Atlantic consistently and always has worked but, but it's a typical narrative historically here. Um, we, you know, we, we've often had a, a siloed approach to business change. Um, we get inconsistent user experiences, we deliver inconsistent user experiences, have done, um, uh, and have delivered an inconsistent ability to consume our capabilities mm -hmm. across the organisation. Um, that's not to say we haven't delivered good user experiences, but they've not necessarily been consistent. Right. They've not been joined up. Um, and we've also had kind of siloed islands of capability in the organisation that makes it difficult to join those systems together. Um, that leads to too much customization, uh, and uh, that leads to divergence costs, technical debt, etc. Um, we've had disjointed delivery approaches, we've reinvented the wheel. Um, I think one of the things we've a lot of people at Virgin would say both in the, the business and technology, and I'll come back to those phrases in a minute because that's something that DevOps also breaks. Mm. We'd look to break is the use of that, that phrase, the business. Um, we, we've often made this, even the simple look difficult. Um, you know, and all of those things result in projects delivering, technology projects delivering for the business, maybe bypassing process, bypassing governance, that kind of thing. And all of that leads to low trust at the gating boundaries that allow you to go live. Yeah. So again, back to this issue of trust. Um, and all of those things then lead to the proliferation uh, you know, of solutions in your technical landscape. You, know, you get a multiplicity and a, 
of solutions, duplication of solutions, uh, overlapping and or inconsistent capabilities. Um, and all of that stuff um, results in an inability to deliver quickly, early, iteratively, um, and, and a, crucially, an inability to react to market demands in a timely fashion. Mm. What, it, what DevOps, or I guess the friendlier term that, that actually I've fallen back on, agility allows you to do is begin to get back, claw back um, some gains in those areas. Mm. No, I agree with that. So when when Virgin said about that they want to go down this line with DevOps, what was the one reason they what or let's say what was the main reason they gave to wanting to go down this line? Well, in all honesty, Virgin as an organisation is still unsure. So my 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 task is to demonstrate it, prove it can work, and at that point we'll see everybody step on board. Yeah. So I wouldn't say we're at the stage yet where Virgin Atlantic is committed to that journey. Mm. Um, I'd say that we have a huge amount of theoretical buy-in and, a, and a, a huge amount of practical goodwill. I think one of the challenges I find, particularly in, in the, in the risk-aware areas of the business, of the organisation, um, if I think about you know, legacy operations, for example, is Nick, we're on board with you. We all know that we need to do this. We all know that across the board, people need to see, you know, uh, a change to the way we deliver. And by the way, we're not always going to be able to deliver like that. There's always going to be those those things that are monolithic and waterfall. But where we can, we want those improvements. Um, and we can see that we need to get from A to Z. But until you've shown us you can get to Z, we don't know how to get there. So we're kind of going to stay at A. Yes. So that, that's where we are at the moment, um, and, and so the early challenges are mindset, um, and of course until we have the proof, uh, until we've demonstrated it, you know, we won't have the level of funding and resource you need to really enact the change in a, a pan-organisational sense. So today it's it's a bottom-up approach and it's a mindset approach, mindset change. Um, journey with a view to getting some targeted point successes that give us that mindset buy-in and enable the leadership team to engage with a truly top-down approach. So how do you, without very little success probably early on because it takes time, how do you go about changing that mindset? So day one, I hadn't the foggiest clue where to start. Yes. Uh, I started mind mapping. Uh, and I figured out that really um, the best place to start was with looking at the as-is, looking at constraints, looking at, I guess, key pieces of, of literature that are out there. So example, you know, everybody knows about the Phoenix Project, for example. Yes. Now, obviously, it's only a story. Um, and anybody who reads that book and tries to follow that book verbatim is, is on a hiding to nothing. But it does give you an interesting viewpoint on areas that you might otherwise not consider. So, for example, the theory of constraints and theory of bottlenecks in that, in that book is, is crucial. So understand, actually, what it is that's choking your delivery. Mm. So you can look at your as-is and you can begin to identify those things without actually doing, you know, needing any finance or any resource, that's something you can do very, very easily. 
and probably with some very honest and open, open conversations with frustrated people, yes. we're only too keen to say, people keep saying, oh, I'm cab, and people keep blaming me for being the bottleneck, but I'm not the bottleneck, because actually, you know, somebody else, somewhere else in the value chain didn't do something or bypassed a process. And you can very quickly begin to map out those and identify where you might begin to make tuned changes. So I guess that was that was my starting point. Um, understanding not only the bottlenecks and the constraints, but also some of the, the challenges, some of the things that would make the stuff that in the Phoenix project looks quite easy. Mm. You know, oh, we'll get our developers to sit in the room and do a bunch of cool stuff. Fine, but at Virgin, we're a heavily outsourced supply chain environment. So immediately your your developers are have a different hat on yes. to your ops team. You know, they're, they're, they're not even they're necessarily uh, employed by the same company. Mm. So then you can figure out, you know, where it's sensible to start and you can begin to figure out which parts of your landscape it will be too challenging to address. So given that we're heavily supply chained, I need to find a supplier who's prepared to work truly as a technology partner. I need to find a supplier who's prepared to stop wearing their corporate badge and actually put on a virgin red coat. And for the purposes of the particular project which, or, you know, or product we're talking about, behave as a virgin member of staff that has, so that has behavioral implications, has managerial implications, certainly has contractual and, and, uh, and funding implications as well. So can I work with a supplier who's prepared to do some best endeavours, some goodwill, have a conversation about their contract? Yes. That immediately excludes some people uh, and includes some others. Yeah. So, as you can hear, slowly, suddenly, I'm actually involved in an iterative approach. Mm. So I'm already beginning to do, apply agility to the process of understanding how to apply agility to the organisation. And as soon as that clicks on a personal level, the journey becomes much easier because everything you're doing is subject to the same conditions that you want to deploy as a framework for technology projects to deliver. I'm going to behave in the same way. I'm going to fail fast. I'm going to figure out where I should be targeting to get those wins. I'm going to apply that mindset to myself. I'm not going to be knocked off course if something goes wrong and it will go wrong and it's going wrong every day, yeah. I'm going to try and correct those things. Um, and by doing that and being open and honest and by having high communication, high honesty um, and, hugely, and a hugely pragmatic approach, you can begin then to get those siloed areas of concerns on board, those people who are in A but don't, don't yet know how to get to Z or willing to engage with you in the conversation. And even if you can't solve all the problems, suddenly you've got everybody at the table or you know, enough of a good number of people at the table to begin slowly, slowly to inch your way forward. And it really is about that. Um, it, you know, one of the things um, that I've sought advice on and, um, is, you know, am I doing the right thing? How do I know I'm doing the right thing? And one of the pieces of feedback that I get is, you know, whatever you do, don't boil the ocean, particularly at this early stage where you need to get success. You're more likely to have success on the focus of one or two small things than trying to do it to everything at the same time across the organisation. So that'd be a foolish place to start. And even within the small number of projects or project you might choose to look at, 
don't try and impact the whole of that project you know, unless you can. Yes. So target point solutions, don't bore the ocean as well because that will increase your chance of success. And I'm doing that every day and the things that I've been looking at, I'm, I continue to scale that down mm. every day until I'm sure that we can ramp up again. Um, so I talked about um, seeking advice. Another uh, uh, leg of the table, if you like, has been getting out there and finding a community to speak to. It's one of the reasons I'm speaking to you today. Yes. Um, I've taken care to engage with people who I've found to be inspiring, um, who I've found to be interesting, who I've found to be engaging or, or have something to say that maybe is something that I've either not experienced or is a, a problem that I haven't solved. So for example, um, there's a, a, an event called uh, um, IDC DevOps. I attended, I think, Q3, Q4 of last year. Uh, and uh, I met uh, a guy called Tom Clark. He was an inspirational head of DevOps at ITV. Uh, I met uh, an equally um, awesome guy called Alex Stanhope, who uh, runs DevOps for a number of organisations. Currently, he's, he's uh, working for a government department. Um, a guy called David Draffin, who's my counterpart at Heathrow Airport. Um, all those guys um, have, have given me sound advice. Have been a, you know a compass bearing for me. Um, I've worked with my counterpart at Virgin Holidays who are several years ahead of us in the DevOps journey. They've got a different kind of technology landscape and a different set of challenges, but they've done it. They do it in anger. They've got a different technical stack, but, but she, you know, she's been more than willing to be a mentor. And all these people are, you know, are, are, are super happy to, to give that advice because they've been in the same place as you have. So, yes. so getting involved with those people is, is really, really important. Um, and at some point, you know, Somebody will come to me for advice, uh, uh, and you know I will be as excited and willing to, to give that help, steering advice as, as all those people uh, have done for me. So, mm. so getting that compass bearing, getting that advice is really important as well in t in, in terms of orienting uh, <laughs> orientating yourself um, yes. and and finding your way. Um, I've talked a bit about kind of failing fast and correcting. So it's understanding the difference between, you, know, you, need an, you need to have a, a view of what your ideal end state would be, but you need to be pragmatic. You need to know that you're gonna have more than one mm. stage of interim approach. Again, I've talked about, you know, the, rather than just the linear direction, I've also talk, talked about the angle from which you're coming to so that bottom up versus top down. Today we're bottom up, but I know that where we need to get to is a top down, mm. um, but it's the chicken and egg until I've delivered through the bottom up, I'm not going to get the top down, and that's Very understandable, true. that's fine, the business are not going to commit to a change in their PMO and financial funding cycles and models and the way that they manage holistically big portfolios and programs of change across the organisation until you've demonstrated you know, that there's something in it, so yeah. that's, that's okay, you need to understand that. I think the other thing, um, something that Alex Dunhope uh, um, talked to me about was the narrative. When you're trying to do that influencing at the more senior level, goodness, the number of times I've had a, a 101 slide deck of mm -hmm. maybe no more than three slides that I thought was the winning slide deck that would have every buddy bought in. There's always somebody in that leadership team room who, who doesn't like the slide deck. Okay. Um, there's always everybody in the room, in that room, those, you know, in our, our case, VPs, heads of, senior VPs, execs, and so on 
all know that there's a problem, but because there's so many complex moving parts to the problem, it's not just about the developers, it's not just about testers, it's not just about the business change people, it's not just about the operational people, it's not just about finance, mm. uh, it's, you know, it's not just about the third parties, there is, every part of that delivery chain is a part of the problem and a part of the solution because that's such a huge problem unless you get the message right rather than engage in the complexity of that message and people don't want to get tugged down into the weeds some people do but a lot of people you know can't don't have the time to get down into those weeds then what they'll do is they'll create another problem and the problem is often you mm. and that and that distracts from actually what you're trying to do so trying to find the narrative is really important i haven't landed on the perfect narrative yet but i now understand that the narrative is key. I'm closing in on it. Yeah, that's good. Um, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, and for me, it's about articulating our problem in terms of the challenges that the business faces. Um, you know, uh, at, at really at a top level. Mm. Um, so, if I, I give you a, a kind of a, an idea of what that that, that might mean, um, there's kind of three pieces to the narrative. I, you know, I. I'd be looking to hone and, and articulate. Um, one of those would be, what do we as an organisation do when, when the competition releases a new product? That doesn't necessarily mean a technical product. Um, it could be you know, uh, um, some new funky feature on an airline or some new price offering mm -hmm. um, or some new combination of a, a holiday and a flight, whatever that is. You know, how, how are we able to, to react to that? You know, maybe today we're doing point solutions or we've got microsites everywhere or we've got mission critical spreadsheets out in engineering, you know, um, or maybe we've got databases on laptops. You know, maybe you know, today the business is cheating and bypassing, um, and, and that leads to the kind of technical debt I talked about earlier. Um, so part of the narrative is articulating that. Uh, I said there were three parts. The second second item for the narrative would be uh, what do we do as an organisation when um, we don't have a quick way to consume. Um, or surface some useful back-end piece of data or capability. Okay. So I think about your Ubers and your yes. Googles and your Amazons. They are super good at making use of all that compute, of all that very clever computer science, um, of all that data, um, and exposing it in such a way that gives value to an end user. So what do we want to? So, so what do we do when we want to do that? Okay, you know, well today, you know, we end up maybe cobbling together custom apps or using third-party apps and somebody else's data or having multiple data sources mm. because I can't get access to a highly latent golden source of data, for example. So again, we cheat. Business creates or poaches its own solutions. We get technical debt, increasing operational cost. Etc. And the third, the the third piece of the tripod is, you know, how do we remain as an organisation cost effect, cost effective in the face of external forces? So, goodness, and you have to look at twenty seventeen, Brexit. Yes. Creating huge uncertainty. Um, you know, I don't, don't want to get into a conversation about whether it's Brexit itself that causes, you know, the drop in the pound, but uncertainty around Brexit has certainly contributed to that. Yeah. Oil prices, well, or increased oil prices for an airline. Are, are, are always a problem, not yeah. just for us, but for, for all airlines. Trump. Massive. Um, the competition. So what, what is our competition doing? Those are all external forces. And how do we remain cost effective in the face of that? Um, 
uh, and if technology adds huge costs in delivering projects um, and handling runtime, and more things to support because we've got an increased technical debt, and more stuff that's out of process that we need to get our arms around, and more stuff that's out of governance, and more divergence in data, and more security implications, GDPR, yep. then our costs are just go, are going up, despite what gains we might make elsewhere in the organisation. Um, even if you know, even if we're selling more seats, even if we're beating the competition, even if we're doing all those things, if your technical landscape is getting bloated, that's going to be undermining all those wins. Mm. You know, and there's the stuff out there that you can't do anything about. So those are the three things that, that contribute to the narrative. I realised I've talked about for about 15 minutes about the narrative. <laughs> the actual pitch would need to be about 30 seconds, right? Yes. But, but those are the things that need to get pulled out. And, and it's understanding how you can funnel that huge amount of complexity down to a point statement that will have an impact that everybody will understand. Yeah. Um, and that is also part of the journey. It's not just making the process change and the governance change. It's being able to articulate and state something that people can buy into that will facilitate the mindset change. I realise we're in the detail here. Yes, <laughs> this sir. is the conversation I've had with Craig Krieger, <laughs> our CEO at that level. But yes. that's, that's all that stuff I need to funnel down onto a pinhead yeah. to have a conversation with him about. And that's the challenge for DevOps. Which is, which is huge in itself. I mean, there's so many things I could talk about in what you said there. I mean, the, the first thing I want to come back to your first point when I asked you the question about, about mindset and culture, which was, you know, which you said about, you said about third party and suppliers. Now, with that, obviously, you run the risk of the brand being affected, as you said, but also your lack of control must cause you issues at times so how would you deal with that for someone else in your position you know trying to deal with so many third-party suppliers so I think the key thing is if you're going to try and affect this change take the steps towards DevOps and that journey involves a third party mm. that third party has to be willing to engage as a technology partner if your hands are so tied that you only, you know, you have to engage on a journey with a single partner who is not willing to, to engage in that conversation, you, you've got some hard questions to ask yourself and maybe DevOps transformation is not going to work hmm. in, in that context. We have a number of third party uh, partners. All of them are great partners, but they have different cha uh, challenges, um, different contracts different resourcing models, they're delivering different parts of our technology stack that are at different points of maturity or different parts of legacy to you know, stability to cutting to bleeding edge. Mm -hmm. So all of those things are in the mix. But for us, we had a number of partners um, and, and I could see the ones who were more likely to be in a position to engage on that, on that, in that conversation or on that journey with us. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to pick and choose that battle entirely accordingly. Now, I'm fortunate in that, you know, of, of that raft of great supplier partners, you know, we have one who's willing to make the kind of changes, knowing that I don't have today a lot of money to play with, and they were, begin and they were willing to enter into that kind of best endeavours, goodwill conversation. Sure, we have to do a bit of stuff in the contract yeah. to get a few heads, specific high quality heads in, but everything else has been done with shuffling resource 
What's in it for them? Well, they know if they can support and prove us out on this journey, that will mean more for them later down the pike, potentially. Um, it also means that they can be more effective in delivering their services to us. So it's not just about what's in it for me, it's about what's in it for them. Mm. So really, you have to step back and say, can this partner, can this supplier, this SI, this third party, act reasonably as a technology partner? Can they put on my corporate badge, not, not literally, but are they willing to, 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 to be subject to the three-line whip? Um, and if they are, then that's a really good starting point. If they're not, can I do it through a contract renegotiation, etc.? Can I get my procurement and my contracts involved? I've been lucky in that I've been able to do that. Um, but again, the reason they're engaged is, is because of that kind of open communicative approach. So that's key as well. You need those people on your on your team involved, procurement and so on. So you better make sure your comms, your openness, you know, your approach, um, your manner, your values are are such that most people want to engage with you. You can do that, they can help you with that third party. Um, if after that you still can't move that third party, then, then I'd suggest you're, you know, you're in a difficult position with, with, with that third party. Hmm. I guess it's like the first question I asked about, about you know, what's your view on DevOps? And I think this next question is always, is always going to be quite, um, maybe easy to answer, I don't know, I'll ask it. Um, would you say you're more if we split the word in two, are you more dev or are you more ops in terms of the way you are now? <laughs> As an organisation or me personally? You personally. So, in the technology part of my career, I spent most of my time as a developer or a deliverer, hmm. less, less of my time as a, a lights on person. Having said that, certainly my time um, supplying to broadcast and film saw me being personally be parachuted into an organisation to fix something that had gone bang. Yes. So I understand and I've been in that pain and it's a horrible pain, so I get it. So although I think my my background, my experiences are, are more in the delivery side, um, I have been at that sharp, nasty end of things and therefore I have complete empathy because I've experienced it over the other side, the high risk side of the fence. Um, today, in my current role, because of the variation of the teams that, that report into me um, and that I work with, um, that I try and support, you know, clearly I'm going to say I'm a 50-50 split, but where I'm trying to get to is capability view of the world. Mm -hmm. I don't think Virgin is ever going to be a, a place where we have a pure DevOps set of people. We're never going to be a place that hires only DevOps engineers and everybody's nicely T-shaped. What we are is going to be a capability that has a continuum with developers at one end and ops people at the other, but there's low barriers to hand off between those teams, there's high levels of communication and trust between those teams, and there's a continual cyclical flow of knowledge and feedback. So mm. that's the end state model that, that Virgin would be heading for. Other organisations will have a different end state model, you know, um, uh, and as we talked about earlier, there's, you know, there's loads of these high level patterns out there that you can look at, um, and the back of the, you know, the DevOps handbook will, will give you all that stuff as well. Yeah. But, but for us, you know, we know that we are always going to have a, both those types of people 
It's about how we ensure that they both understand each other's challenges. And that's why I have to be, by necessity, 50-50 split in answer to your question. Would you say you still like to get your hands dirty, though, in the projects? <laughs> I haven't written a line of code since 2014. I haven't written a real formal solution since about 2010. So in terms of my ability to, to um, do a, a Scotty on Star Trek flip over the laptop <laughs> and, and get us to walk back to you know, 10 or whatever, uh, <laughs> you're probably better looking elsewhere. I think, you know, I, I understand how to solve problems and I've done it enough times to know that, you know, I can go and get somebody who's, who's heads in the game now and we can get it done, you know, and that there is always an answer to those kind of problems. I've been through it before. So, um, you know, I'm always happy to sit with teams and, and, and work through their problems. I'm maybe not the person to roll my sleeves up and write the code to crack the problem, mm. but I will be the person who sits there and make sure that there are no impediments to that person getting that line of code written. If that means me banging some heads together or, or having nice, preferably actually having good conversations with people, remove the bit about banging heads. <laughs> uh, uh, if, you know, if, if that's about me, you know, unblocking barriers to developers or operational people or infosec, you know, who themselves are often seen as a barrier and they're not, they're just stuck mm -hmm. in the middle. You know, if I can help infosec move things forward, then that's the conversation I'll have. So in terms of being hands-on, Yes, I'm hands-on in that way, and you have to be. So you, you're hands-on in terms of the detail that goes in, your your leadership skills, and probably thirdly, the the overall quality of delivery. That's absolutely right. I'm not the person who's going to uh, configure how um, a pull is going to work in VSTS. Mm. Um, my, my DevOps tech lead will do that. Um, you know, I know where the button is. But he'll do a better job of it than me. Uh, but absolutely, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, we've all got a part to play, and, and I've got as much skin in the game as anybody else from that respect. Yeah. Okay. See, so you've you've talked about your different your different experiences previously in terms of your deliveries, um, and there's been a lot of technology transformations that you've been involved in. But what would you say has been your best one so far? I've had a bunch of different wins across my career, a bunch of different fails as well, yes. um, which make the wins sweeter. And the fails are the things that you know, give you that different viewpoint and help hopefully make you do things better the next time round. And that actually is really crucial, but don't be afraid of failing. Don't cover up failure. Be honest and exhume it. Look at it. Why did it fail? Crack on with the next thing. If you can't do that, you're going to do DevOps. Mm. Yeah, so that's, I think, an important thing to understand. Um, at Virgin, <coughs> I guess a number of wins. Um, one of those will be with you know, helping gain and onboard you know, my contribution to those that big waterfall, big band delivery, mm. despite the constraints of a waterfall approach. And then having quickly to go around and tidy up and deliver a BAU capability to support that after the event, get that in place and have a again an iterative learn and fail fast approach to putting in place that BAU capability to support what would be a big bang delivery. That was a huge win. Um, we are currently focused on a very small number of projects in flight at the moment for the DevOps approach. My, my plan A had been to identify a lighthouse project and do it end to end. Funding the resource wouldn't support that. So we had to look at an alternative way of doing it. We had a small number of 
agile-ish projects in flight with, um, that all, all had a commonality. Um, they were all using the same technical tooling. They were all delivering to the same uh, environmental stack, so an Azure uh, solution in this case. So that gave us the ability to say, well, you know, they're all trying to be agile. They're all using some similar tools. They're all kind of constrained and delivering to the same kind of uh, to, to the same set of environments that has vagaries. We need to get some governance around in terms of elasticity, elasticity cost, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's a good way to start. Let's put our arms around those. Look at the ones that are more advanced, see if there's anything we can take from those as quick wins into the other ones and begin to move forward. So inch by inch, we've we've turned up some improvement. Hmm. Uh, we've looked at so, some of the agility behaviours across those and begun to get a bit of bit more consistent alignment. What we're tr not trying to do is be didactic. What we're not trying to do is say all projects that run agile must run in this way. That, that would be a mistake. Um, we're just trying to bit by bit build up something that, that is the starting point of our DevOps framework, build together some artifacts that give a new PM something to hang his or her hat off, yeah. begin to build, and that includes in that artifact set, not just the, the process and the direction and the patterns, but some exemplars of use cases. In project A, we did it this way. In project B, we actually pulled ops in on the second sprint and had a conversation with InfoSec on day three. Um, and they had a concern about X, Y, Z, so we agreed a draft document that did why. Begin to use case that out. So people actually have something tangible that can go, ah, right, I could take that and use it in my project and begin to get this alignment. So that's a small start, mm. but we've got that small number of projects in flight and we're beginning to do those alignments and get those gains. I was chatting to my opposite number at Delta Airlines over in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago um, and they've got some some money to begin making their changes and they've spun up a dojo and their plan is that every project that is going to run through a, an agility and or a DevOps um, mode of action, that whole team will go through the dojo and spend one, two, six weeks training up. Um, and so they're doing that in anger um, and that's great. But when they looked at what we'd done with no money and just tinkering on a few projects, we've made the start that they haven't, that they haven't been able to make. Right. So don't be afraid, don't, don't, don't get stuck in a mindset of, I don't have money, I don't have resource, and I've only done a little bit. Actually step back and go, you know, what alignment, what have I managed to achieve you know, with no money mm. and no resource? Um, when I say no resource, it's, it's rejigged resource, right? But yeah, no additional yeah. resource. Um, you know, and, and look at the wins, and then build on those. So don't be afraid to, to just take those small starts and those small points. You know, targeted point wins and mm. take it forward. Uh, and indeed, my colleague at Delta said, "Well, yeah, we've got this dojo, but you know, I don't have. I still don't have a process map for CI/CD. Well, they had mine, and they was going to use that as his starting point. Right. Um, you know, and, and they're going to look at ways that we can stick some of our team through their dojo because we don't have the resource to do that. Collaboration. Back to my point about collaboration earlier. Yeah. Okay. So you've talked a fair amount about collaboration, communication, but something that you haven't really touched on, which is, especially in the business, how close do you have to be with the business? Because you've talked about budgets, you've talked about yeah. resources, yeah. them sort of things, and how regular would these conversations go on with the business side? It's a good question. It's, it's, again, it's, uh, 
when you're looking, when you're at the start of the journey, you're figuring out what things you need to focus on and what the order of events is. For me, there was kind of a natural fallout, and it ended up with we've had edits, find some projects in flight. We've had conversations with the business stakeholders mm. and the business partners. For the things that we think we might target, we make sure that they you know, they want to, they see value in the involvement and the engagement. So we're automatically having the conversations with those business people, even if we're not having it with the wider community because we're not mature enough or we're not that mindset, that narrative level that I talked yeah. about yet to, to have engagement with all of the business. But there are those those parts of the business community that are areas of focus, have those conversations. But for their projects, the kind of fallout of the already events was, well, let's focus on the development delivery and the testing bit of the pipe. We know we're going to have to have the operational conversation. Let's defer that for a few weeks, such that we have those incremental gains with the dev and the testing. And now we can have the conversation with the ops people and begin to look at how to involve those um, and get, again, those incremental wins. And we're in the middle of that conversation at the moment with those people. So it's, it's, it's that bit by bit approach. It's, it's they're not boiling the ocean, but all the way through that journey, the intention is that although it's only a small slice of the business community, that it's that slice that's focused on the project we're talking about and they're beginning to see the value. They understand, well, why do I need to reduce what I can functionally commit into this sprint? Uh, well, I understand now that you're putting some testing in there and the reason for doing that is you want to lower the trust boundary because I now understand what InfoSec were talking about when they said, mm. You know, you're going to have a headache if you come to us in cab in 12 weeks with this thing and you haven't had the conversation. So it's being able to have those conversations. Now, those aren't always wins. and It's not always a happy conversation, but often it is a happy conversation as well. And again, the tacking and changing. Uh, I started off with my arms around four projects. One of them we've stepped back from um, to the extent that we're just feedback looping into them, but we're not tinkering yes. with their pipeline because it would derail them. We're in constant conversation with them and with their business stakeholder, and we want that to continue, but we've agreed that we're just going to step back and just give the feedback. But for the others, some of the others, it's wholehearted engagement. So you know, you've got to feel your way through, and you've got to be mindful of the outcome, ultimately, the outcome ultimately for, for the business stakeholder, because I, yeah, Ultimately, if technology is not delivering for the business, what are you doing? So mm. that, that needs to be your focus, really. And if it's the wrong thing to be doing, you need to step back and do the right thing for the business. You need to be open and honest and, and willing to do that. You can't just dogmatically drive forward and say, we're going to do DevOps because it's the right thing, because by being dogmatic, you're not being DevOps. So you just touched on it briefly there. The, what is the personality profile of a person that you would look for to work in, a, in in your DevOps team? You need to be pragmatic, you can't be dogmatic. You need to be willing to tack and change. You need to be willing to engage in communications with people who are subject to very different pressures and constraints and concerns than you are. Mm. Often the business is, is subject to different pressures than you. Operations are subject to different pre pressures than you. Or you know, if you're in operations, uh, technology delivery is subject to different pressures to you. Uh, a project team is subject to different pressures to a BAU team. Mm. You need to be willing to pull down those boundaries, examine the differences and engage on 
a transformational change that accounts for all of those different viewpoints. Okay, something that I haven't told you, Nick, we always finish the podcast with the same 10 questions. <laughs> um, so they're very quick fire answers. Oh, right, okay. So, what turns you on professionally? <laughs> oh God, these are hard questions already. <laughs> what turns me on professionally um, is being sat in a room with a bunch of can-do people who don't necessarily have the answer, but everybody in that room knows and wants to go away and come back with their bit of the answer. What turns you off professionally? Dogmatism. How do you unwind? <laughs> uh, with guitar, playing my guitar, singing, playing with my band. Nice. What profession other than your own would you like to try? <laughs> Lead guitarist and singer in a band. What activity gives you the most energy? <laughs> Marathon running. Who is your biggest inspiration? Wow. I've got a bunch of them. Um, in t today, in terms of DevOps, it would be those people I mentioned earlier, so people like Tom Clark, Alex Stanton, um, um, Sue Dickinson, my, my, uh, my, my oppo over in V-Holes. Um, across my life, uh, my physics teacher at Adel, uh, Nigel Briggs, um, got me a grade B when I was clearly an F grade student uh, and inspired me uh, in science, yeah. Amazing. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be a subject? Trust. You're at your best when you were doing what? Collaborating. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart? <laughs> I know what I want to say, I'm just trying to articulate it. Don't regret the failures because they've led you to where you are. Perfect. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say is the reason he is letting you through the gates? <laughs> if I wasn't a scientist, I'd say I was an atheist, but as a scientist I have to say I'm a 99% agnostic because I could be wrong. <laughs> but that's it, perfect. So what, um, just coming back to your, uh, to your, your singing career, um, what what sort of music are you into? What sort of music do you like to play? <laughs> uh, all sorts. Um, so, when it's me and my guitar, mm. um, I probably do a bit of folk, a bit of pop, jazz, blues. When it's with the band, it's reggae, surf, uh, uh, it's um, ska, yeah. um, and a bit of classic 80s post-punk new wave the cure type stuff um, or as the keyboardist says who's obsessed with OMD as the last <laughs> song of any session go on let's play the gay let's play the gay <laughs> but like the, again coming back to my million pound question what band would you like to have joined 
like big popular band? What band would you like to? <laughs> I would not foist my inadequate skills on any band. <laughs> Come on, there must have been one that you would have like dreamt of, even as a kid or now, you would have dreamt of being in that band. Oh, good grief! Well, when I was uh, so this is an indicator of my age. When I was at infant school, uh, infant school, no, junior school. God, it really is an indicator of my age. Uh, uh, I used to wrap uh, tea towels and my mom's scarves around my wrists and around my waist and I put the white stripe across my nose so it would be Adam and the Ants <laughs> and there we go what a perfect way to finish this podcast um, it's been a pleasure Nick I certainly learned a lot especially about mindset and about communicating with the business I think it's I think it's still people that work in your role still struggle with that part you know no matter what because it's trying to convince the business it's the right thing for the business without being able to show any short-term successes or financial returns early on. So I think a lot of the stuff that you were saying will resonate with a lot of people, even if they're in you know, a developer or engineer role, they're yeah. still going to face them same issues. So I think they were very some strong points and certainly uh, parts that people can take on into their own careers. So thank you for that. Pleasure. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.